This is Game Theory, our podcast about competition, strategy, and decision-making, hosted by me, Nick Andrews, and my brother, Chris. If you're just finding the podcast and you're starting at the top, we would recommend that you start somewhere in the middle. This episode was dropped before Chris had recording equipment or before we even knew what we're doing. If you want to start the journey at the beginning and listen all the way through, that's fine too. But if you want to just find out what this podcast is all about, I have some recommended episodes from the past year or so in the show notes. I hope you enjoy and I hope you come back. Chess is having a moment. With the success of popular media depicting chess, like most recently the Netflix series The Queen's Gambit, as well as popular live streamers picking up the game and running with it, chess has surged in popularity over the last several months. It doesn't take much to learn the rules of chess. Even the trickier ones aren't that complicated. Starting a game is easy. Move some pawns or get creative and send a knight leaping into the action right off the bat. But after the first several moves, once the pawns have started their march to war and the knights and bishops have staked out territory in the center of the board, things get a lot messier. Even a few moves into the opening of the game and the complications and calculations are impossibly daunting in comparison with the pristine starting position. It's often at this point that beginning players blurt out, I just don't know what to do. This episode won't solve all your chess problems, but it will give a couple of pointers so you can do some chess learning on your own in a way that isn't just blindly stumbling through opening videos on YouTube or crushing blitz games all day. This is, I think, the real key to getting better as a new player. Learn what features of a chess position are good and which ones are bad, and strive to create good ones for yourself and bad ones for your opponent. We've listed a few examples of good and bad positional features, but there are dozens more to know than the ones we talk about. I personally recommend two books to learn a bunch more about what good positional play in chess is. The first one is a classic, My System by Aaron Nimzovich. It's arguably the most influential chess book of all time, written by undoubtedly the most influential chess opening theorist of all time. The other book is Pawn Power in Chess by Hans Kmock. These books are good for giving you the vocabulary you need to talk about chess positions and figure out who's actually winning. They lay the foundations for figuring out what to do in specific scenarios. When you see a backward pawn, blockade it with a piece. Get your rooks to the seventh rank. Plan them on half-open files. See the position on the board. Identify the features. And know what things you should try to take advantage of and which you should avoid. This episode of Game Theory, our podcast about strategy, competition, and policy. And where better to start than with the quintessential quintessential strategy game, which is chess. I'm joined, of course, by my brother, Chris. What's up, Chris? Hey, Nick. How are we doing? Good. So uh, I guess is the obvious place to start is with the game of chess for two reasons. One, because the Queen's Gambit is essentially the greatest movie anyone's ever seen ever. And because it's a, a great basis for what game theory is. Now, if you think this is going to be a podcast about economics or economic theory, at some point, perhaps we'll get into that. But basically, game theory as a, as a word has become decision making. It's become about strategy. It's become about competition. So that's what this show is going to be about. We'll get into things like war. We'll do history. Anytime there's a, a, a crux of decision making and strategy and competition and fighting and all that, we're going to do that. So the first thing we need to do is talk about something called a zero sum game. And that means 
a competition. There's a winner and there's a loser. If you don't, if you're not first, you're last. So the best way to explain that, of course, is with the game of chess. Chess brought to the new world, if you will, what is now Europe by, I think, uh, Muslim explorers, Islamic explorers from the Arab world. Now it's everywhere and it is possibly as we heard from Chris, never been bigger. So let's talk about it. First thing that we need to talk about is you were a chess nerd before it was cool. Yeah, that's right. I've been playing chess. Well, we've been playing chess collectively for uh, just over 25 years. And I realized that uh, the other day in the shower, just thinking about how long it's been since we first played our first chess game uh, all those years ago. I've been playing competitively for a little bit less time than that, but not a whole lot. Uh, I'd say it's probably for... Uh, maybe about 20 years or so, I've been playing real actual chess with uh, kind of stakes on the line, uh, up to and including uh, pretty handsome payments. Turns out it's not too difficult to uh, get a little payout if you can finish up in the top five or top three of a section chess. Yeah, so uh, you know tournaments and over, over the board, which is something we'll talk about now, that's when you're playing in person, a lot of other stuff happens online. Of course, you can download these apps and play all the time, but we need to discuss what chess is uh, from from the top down, which is... For some people, it's a hobby. For other people, it's a way to make a living. For other people, it's like a really important hobby. And for other people, it's just this thing that kind of exists that maybe they do or don't know how to play. And I think the most important thing to think about is unless you're one of these people who's trying to make a living at it, um, it's just something to do for fun. So how do we play well enough to have fun without being intimidated by high level tactics and, and nomenclature and the stuff that you would see in like the Queen's Gambit. How do, how do I play when I sit across the board and I know enough about moves to get uh, 10 moves in without embarrassing myself? Well, I think the first thing to realize is when you're starting out a game of chess and you pair up with somebody on say one of the online apps, uh, they tend to pair you with somebody who's kind of at your similar level of experience or skill. And if you take a back, if you take a step back for a second, realize they're probably just as confused and nervous about the game as you are. Uh, that's why we have a rating system, and that's why people are paired against evenly matched opponents. Uh, the next thing to realize, I think, is that chess isn't some mystical language, the secrets of which are jealously guarded by the elite few. Uh, it's accessible to pretty much anybody. Uh, you don't even necessarily need a board to think about chess if your visualization skills are pretty strong. Uh, it's also good for people who used to like competitions in their life, uh, maybe if they played sports growing up or if they're really into betting or poker or things like that. It's just a matter of learning specific skills and applying them over and over again in games and practice and thinking about the way the moves are supposed to play out. And it's developing a skill set. And there's really not a whole lot of luck involved. Even if your opponent plays something that is difficult or you don't understand, you can still think your way through a position and put yourself in a posi position to do successful things in the game. Yeah, so I think, I think a lot about sports and music here, metaphorically, as, as an analogy, you think about if you're trying to do, if you're trying to play well at, at a guitar or a saxophone or become a good singer, you need to learn scales and you need to learn all of these, these building blocks of what it is. Uh, but that's not necessarily playing chess. Chess is a non-zero-sum game, which means there's a winner and a loser. So let's start with, and if, if you understand chess, uh, this is probably something you may or may be able to skip or whatever, but it's checkmate. Chess is war between two medieval kingdoms. You need to guard your king and you need to use your kingdom to get the other guy's king. Who is going to be the ruler of the land? And the pieces can, can move certain ways. But for the most part, despite all of the tactics and all the study you want to do at the beginning and the end of the day, it is about killing the other guy's king. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. The number one objective is to defeat your opponent, and you do so by attacking the king. Uh, there are three ways a chess game can end for a player. Uh, that player can win by doing what we just described and attacking the enemy king or having their opponent resign the game. Uh, that player could lose by letting their king fall to the enemy's forces or by quitting. Uh, or the players can draw. And there are actually a few ways for that to happen in chess. Uh, just by the rules of the game, uh, there are specific situations in which a draw is the result no matter what, whether the players want it or not. Uh, but there are also situations wherein a player might be down a little bit too far and it's too late for them to earn victory. And so then their goal becomes putting themselves in a position to uh, squeak out a draw. Yeah, and uh, let's talk about the Queen's Gambit a little bit because you and I, last time we saw each other in person, we argued about a, a specific scene where the old man, this like he plays the the role of the cliche mage who teaches the young person how to do the new thing. And he got mad at, at the girl, Beth Harmon, the, the protagonist, because she wanted to play till the end. And you've made fun of me as I've been in my journey that young new players make old people checkmate them. And as a result of that, old people toy with them and make it hurt as much as possible because at a high level, when a game is lost, it's time to resign. So at what, what point should people resign? Like, what did you think about that scene? And, and from a chess ethics standpoint, when would you tip your king over in a serious game? Well, I thought that scene uh, brings up a really interesting point about how long a game is supposed to be played out. And I don't fault Beth for wanting to finish the game because unlike this older guy who's been playing the game for years, uh, it was brand new to her. And she was supposed to try to discover what the game is like and what does it mean to play through a lost position? And what does it mean to complete a game as opposed to just resigning with dignity? Uh, and as a kid who was slowly developing an addiction to tranks, uh, I don't think that dignity and reverence for her opponent were very high up on her priority list. So I fault him for getting mad at her about that. With that said, I have made fun of you relentlessly before for playing out games far too long. Uh, and I draw the line where competition, like serious competition ends and fun time killing begins. Uh, there's this old adage in chess, and I forget who said it, uh, but it's attributable to the sum of a grandmaster. He said, you should never ever resign in a tournament game because there's always a chance that your opponent could keel over and die before the clock runs out. Uh, dark, but true. Uh, in tournaments, sometimes there's money stakes or uh, some kind of qualification on the line. There's real world consequences for playing a game through. Uh, even if it's pretty hopelessly lost, you can still squeak out a draw. If you're playing online and playing a lot of blitz chess, which is, of course, chess with shorter time controls where players have three, five minutes to move or even shorter, it might not be in your best interest to continue to play out a game where you're down a lot of material or your king is on the run. Uh, and at the end of the day, if you play those games out a whole lot, what you're doing isn't making you better at chess. It's just making you play more bad chess and it wastes your opponent's time as well. Uh, so the way to get better is to recognize when hopeless defeat is at your hopeless defeat is your fate and just start over a new game and try to play better next time. What's really fascinating to me is that I think chess sort of pioneered and made cool the rage quit because it literally you kill your own king. It was the first first game that if, if you're a video game player, you're just ripping the cord out of the Xbox. That's called rage quitting. Chess wants you to rage quit when it's time and you're done. That is ethically. Uh, a standard thing because as you said you just end up wasting your time so let's talk about time this is something i wanted to get into how the clock works so if you want to be good at chess my recommendation as someone who is i would say i'm an a plus beginner like that's where my ranking is i can talk about it enough but i'm, I'm not competitive with anybody if you're into golf like 
where 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 people like Chris is and and above Chris, those people could play a game of golf with Tiger Woods and it wouldn't be ridiculous. For me, it would be ridiculous. It'd be pointless for me to sit down across the chessboard from some of these famous players like, say, Magnus Carlsen. Uh, so I want to let's. If you want to get to that level, you got to download the apps. There are two apps that I like, Chess.com and Lee Chess, and it's just pairing you with other random players throughout the world in different kinds of games. So when you look at these apps, there will be options for how long you want to play. And if there are two numbers, and this is something I found out the hard way, the number on the left is how many minutes you have. So when it's your time to move, that clock counts down. And the number on the right is how many seconds you get back for playing a move. So the most popular, I think, the most popular form of chess on some of these apps is 3-2 Blitz, which means it's quick thinking. You have three minutes to play the game when it's your turn to move. And every time you move, you get two seconds back. Playing a lot of that has certainly helped me learn how to play the game. And also if I found out that the clock is also your opponent slash your teammate. Yeah, I think time is one of the most confusing things to really beginning players. I think there's this mystique, kind of an aura about chess that it takes a long time and it's played in a lot of smoke-filled rooms with very serious people thinking hard about the position on the board. And so when beginners pick it up, they think, oh, well, this is going to take a long time. And it's really difficult. So people tend to take a long time to make a decision when you're playing over the board and there's no clock involved. But when you introduce the element of time, you got to change the way you play. Otherwise, you're just going to end up losing a lot because that's the consequence. It's funny to me sometimes how surprised people are to learn that the clock is there to decide who wins and loses. Uh, That's the only other way that you can lose aside from being checkmated or quitting is having your time run out. And that that's it. It's not a draw. It's not uh, it's not a fair situation. Well, I guess it is fair, but the point is that time really is an important issue. And I think you were getting at something that's really important for new players to realize. It's kind of fun to play with those faster time controls because you don't have to wait as long for your opponent to make a move. And you don't really have to think too deeply about the position. You can just kind of go, which I think is sort of the beginner's default method of playing the game anyway. Yeah, and and that's what tell me is just understanding the mechanics of what it looks like. And what's going to happen is if you're a true beginner, you're going to get out there. It's going to give you a base rating, and you're going to get your ass kicked. You're probably going to lose 20 in a row, but then you'll find people that are at your beginner level, and it'll get competitive, and you'll learn the rules. If you can Google it, and you can listen to this and watch all these things and download that masterclass or whatever, but you have to understand the mechanics. The only way to get good at basketball is to get a basketball and dribble it and shoot it and, and mess around with it. These apps are brilliant at being able to do that, something that I really enjoyed uh, doing. And now I'm at a point in my my life where my chess, my chess path where I think I want to take it a step further. So when we come back, we're going to get into this article that Chris wrote. We understand that podcasts are an audio medium, but the notes are available wherever notes are found in your particular app. And these are just the basic terms to understand when playing chess. And I guess it would be, I'll call it a googlyography, where you should start Googling if you want to uh, get a little bit better at chess and what you should look into coming up right after this. Welcome back to Game Theory. This is an intro into chess. And the reason we wanted to do this is just to kind of start off the pod nice and easy. And because we have a lot of episodes coming up about chess and where chess will be used as a metaphor. So it's a good place to start. Also, as Chris said, it's having a moment. So let's talk about a couple of things that you need to understand if you want to get better. Like how should you get better? All these apps, you can play them. They have puzzles and games and lessons. So let's let's start with the words. I want to start with tactics and what things like forks are, discovery is, what's a pin, uh, check, how does check work? Let's get into tactics and the lingo of chess. Sure. So I think tactics and strategy are the kind of words that 
people like to use a lot in business settings or whatever and don't really know what they mean. Mm -hmm. But in chess, tactics and strategy have very specific meanings. Uh, they're specific skill sets based on certain patterns of play and involving certain pieces and sequences of moves that allow a player to gain some kind of advantage. Uh, most often tactics are used to win material, but they can also be used to try to drum up a checkmate attack or just improve the position in a really serious way that gives the player an edge. Uh, and tactics aren't just random moves that seem good. Uh, useful moves are kind of just there. They improve the position a little bit, uh, but they don't really serve a concrete purpose in the moment. Whereas tactics are the vehicle by which a player carries out their strategy. And it's the moves that are actively propelling the position forward and, and advancing their goals. So I, I wanted to jump in and talk about as we get into what, what different things do. So one thing that I found fascinating that I didn't know until a little bit later was that the, some nerds out there have assigned the pieces point values. So all of your tactics and your strategy, if it's not to immediately checkmate the king, you want to gain an advantage by, I guess, scoring more points than your opponent by taking off their pieces. So pawn is worth one, arguably. And if you get too deep into this, the nerds will confuse you. Essentially, a pawn is one. A bishop and a knight are each three, right? A rook right. or a castle is five, and a queen is infinite or nine or ten or whatever you want it to be. So if, would you rather have a bishop or a pawn? That's easy. Would you rather have a rook or a bishop? If you don't know, you'd rather have a rook. Would you rather have a, a bishop or a knight? Essentially, they're the same. Most high-level nerds will tell you that you'd rather have a bishop. But again, there's a point value. So when you said to say tactics and strategy, if I can't go for your king, I will try to find a way to use my pawn and give that to you in exchange for your knight. So those are the kind of things that will propel you to win for the most part, unless of course you want me to take your knight so that you can have my territory, which is different. Yeah. I, I think it's pretty easy to understand. If you're going to fight a war against somebody, you want to have more guys on your side. You want to outnumber your opponent. So in chess in general, it's good to have more players on the board than your opponent because that gives you more options. You get to cover more territory. You get to create more threats uh, and you get to defend better against what your opponent's trying to drum up. Uh, you're exactly right on the point values. I think the general consensus is pretty solid that the queen is worth nine points. And that's what these apps that we talked about will list the queen as. Uh, if a player loses a queen, for example, then they'll go into minus nine on the point count. Uh, the point count shouldn't be a distraction, but it is a useful scale to kind of figure out the relative importance of pieces. Uh, throwing away a rook is throwing away five whole points. Uh, and so if you do that in exchange for a single pawn, more often than not, you're going to wind up on the losing end of that exchange. Uh, but that also gets at a really important point about the value of the pieces in that they change depending on what phase of the game you're in and what squares the pieces are on. A pawn on the seventh rank, for example, which is about to become a queen, is a lot more valuable than a bishop that isn't able to take it at the end of a game. And so the player that has just the bishop, well, they have more points in one moment, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're in a better position to win in the game. But uh, in general, it's better to have higher value pieces so that you can create more threats because they're just more dangerous. That's just a feature of the way the pieces move. Okay, so let's get into it. I have recently become a year-long subscriber to all masterclasses, and I wanted to get into the Gary Kasparov masterclass for chess. Kasparov is probably top five, ten all-time living chess players, which through math and nerddom, we can kind of rank everyone that's ever lived because chess is chess is chess. He's one of the goats, absolutely one of the goats, super into politics now. 
but he started his masterclass where you started your article, which is with forks or double attacks. Yeah, so double attacks are probably the most important individual tactic out there. And they're so important that I think you could even consider them to be part of a strategy to generate as many of them as you can. Uh, the basic idea of a double attack is that you create two problems for your opponent at one time. Uh, specifically with a fork, that's when a piece or a pawn is in a position to attack two enemy units at once. Uh, it's the foundation of all chess strategy because it's impossible for your opponent to deal with two separate problems at the same time by the rules of the game because you only get one turn to go. Uh, so what kind of things are you looking for with a good fork? Well, uh, you want to have a piece that can create threats in a variety of different directions. Uh, so bishops are okay. Rooks are often employed, but the best piece to put your opponent's pieces under double attack with is a knight. Uh, they have a unique moving pattern because uh, not only can they move in that weird little L shape, but they can also jump over enemy units. So they can create forks, even if there are barricades in the way that would block a fork from a rook or a bishop or even a queen. And to me, that's fascinating because I have been a victim of those. It's something that you can look for, right? Essentially, if you can visualize this, if you're driving down the road or working out or whatever, you put your knight in a position so that if it goes one way, it attacks the king. This is the best kind of uh, option of a fork, right? It attacks the king. And then if it goes another way, it attacks any other piece because your opponent has to get out of check. The goal is to not die. The goal is to kill the person's king. So if you threaten on one side, your opponent's bishop, and on the other side, you threaten check, you're, you check your opponent, your opponent's going to lose his or her bishop because they, they have to move their king by rule. So that's a fork, right? But there are a bunch of other options as well because the knight could attack you know, the rook and the queen or the two rooks or a rook and a pawn or whatever. The knight, because it can do that, is kind of the trickiest one of being able to do that. But there are others. Bishops can do that and rooks can do that as well. Yeah, exactly. And so a player who's looking to improve is going to do well to try to look out for situations where they can identify forks. If I move this pawn, how many pieces am I attacking at, at once? If I move my knight in a specific, both king and the queen at the same time, for example. Uh, it's, if you're looking for forking moves, uh, then you want to get to know in and look for common distances away from specific squares that the knight is going to be, is that Knights can always jump to the opposite color of the square that they're on now. And so pieces that are on a color of a square that's opposite of the one that your knight is on generate a fork there. So it's really important to be looking at the game from the opening to the end game. So let's keep uh, going through some of these, these terms here. What is a skewer? Ah, so a skewer is kind of an inversion. Uh, the basic concept for both of these is like a queen, a bishop, or a rook. And it's attacking one piece, but behind that, in the same straight line or same straight diagonal, is another piece. And if the first piece moves to get out of the way of the attacking piece, then it exposes the back piece. A pin is a little bit more powerful than a skewer because that's a situation where the weaker piece is in front of the stronger piece. So, For example, if I have a bishop along a diagonal and there's a, my opponent's rook and queen are also on that diagonal, if the rook is in front of the queen, then if he doesn't move it, I'm going to take the rook. But if he does, then all of a sudden his queen is in danger. So 
he is in a real tight bind or where, or you could say his rook is pinned down to the queen. Right. Uh, those are also especially powerful when the king is involved, just like we talked about with the fork. Uh, it's actually illegal to move a piece out of the way of a pin where the back piece is the king. And then to address the question, a skewer is just the opposite of that. It's when an attacking piece has a more valuable piece lined up in front of a less valuable piece. So if your opponent's queen is in the way and her rook is behind that and she moves the queen, she's going to lose the rook. So similar concept, just different point values. Okay, so there are an infinite amount of terms that you can you can learn, and all of those are something that you can kind of Google if you find our show notes. And there are many, like we'll link to all the master classes, including the Kasparov one that I mentioned here, some other cool videos that we like. And there are a bunch of books that Chris recommends, some of which that I have, and all of those will be linked in the show notes. But let's end sort of the strategy discussion on what chess is the by going back to where we started, which is what checkmate is, how to get your opponent in checkmate, and and the purpose of the game. So. I would like to start by saying that you can never kill your opponent's king. That's a, that's a misnomer. You can only checkmate, which means that the king has no safe moves. And on your next move, you will theoretically kill the king. So it's when death is certain, right? And that, like, that's something that I didn't kind of wrap my mind around when you're a kid. You're like, oh, well, I try to kill my opponent's king. Like That doesn't happen. You, you want to get the king in a puzzle where there are no options. And the only way to get out of it is to perhaps kill your opponent's piece or run away or whatever. But the, the goal is to put this king in the trap. Yeah, the king is, I, I like to think of it as really the neediest piece. Uh, because in the beginning, it's one of the weakest pieces on the board. I mean, even pawns have some dynamic opportunities that uh, can make them pretty dangerous. Whereas the king can only move to adjacent squares. And its moves are limited by what your opponent's forces are doing. You can move any of your pieces into the path of your opponent's attacking pieces, except the king. You're legally not allowed to do that. Uh, and so you can block off your opponent's king if you can uh, establish a line that you know, maybe a rook or a queen doesn't allow the king to get past. Uh, and it's a really big priority in the opening of the game, especially, uh, but really at all times to consider your king's safety because as we said, if you get checkmated, you lose. And so the name of the game really is checkmate. It's easily the most foundational concept in all of chess. Uh, it's how you win. Uh, I think a lot of beginning players know what check looks like. And for whatever reason, newer players just love playing check. Uh, Bobby Fisher had this expression that I'm paraphrasing, but it's something to the effect of Patser sees check, Patser takes check. And it can be really valuable in a lot of situations, but it doesn't always lead to checkmate and it doesn't always lead to some other gain of material. What you want to do is save the checks for when they really matter, like improving your position or more importantly, getting a checkmate. Uh, now, that said, there are three ways to get out of check. There's the easiest method, which is moving the king to a safe square, which is pretty obvious. If your king is attacked, you got to move it. Second method is to block the check by putting another piece or a pawn in the way. Uh, that's like the hero's way where your knight nobly sacrifices his life in the face of an onslaught in order to save the king. Uh, but that's not always possible to do because if your opponent, say, attacks you with the knight, uh, the knight can just leap over the pieces. So it's impossible to block a knight that way. Uh, and then the third method of getting out of check is to take the piece that's putting the king in check. Uh, more often than not, that's the ideal way. 
Uh, it'd be great to just kill anybody who's making a threat, but sometimes it's difficult to do. And then sometimes it's part of uh, tactical combinations where, like you talked about earlier, your opponent wants to give up material in order to gain some other advantage or maybe pursue checkmate. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, now we're going we're gonna to take our last break and when we come back, we're going to review a little bit more about checkmate and we're going to talk about the elephant in the room, which as we record this in 2021 is, of course, the Queen's Gambit. Welcome back to Game Theory, our episode about chess. And we were just discussing checkmate. And I want to talk about uh, that a little bit more in terms of like how often it happens. Is you, your rating, Chris, is you're 16 something according to the government or whatever your federation is? Yeah, the US Chess Federation, of which I'm a member, uh, okay. says that my rating is just over 1600, which puts me uh, right about in the exact middle of chess players worldwide. Uh, that's based on, so the rating is on a scale that's named after a guy. It's called the ELO scale. And it's calculated based on how strong your opponents are and how well you do in games against them. Uh, the best players in the world, the, the so-called super grandmasters, uh, those are players whose ratings are above 2,700. So that's really the top end of the scale. And the, the really, truly elite ones, like the Magnus Carlsons and the Fabiano Caruanas of the world, uh, their ratings are well above 2,800. In contrast, very, very beginning players uh, who kind of know the rules of the game, but not a whole lot else, their rating might be around 900 or so. And that's where you see like a lot of young children and, and people who just have never played any kind of game at all. Uh, but there aren't as many players at that rating level as you would think. And so a lot of players kind of uh, stagnate a little bit in the range that I'm in. Uh, but that doesn't mean we're not trying to get better. Right. Absolutely. So like I... I said that so we could talk about this, which was the Queen's Gambit. We'll, let's talk about like what's accurate about it and what's not accurate about it from a chess standpoint, from a narrative standpoint about addiction and soloism and all that stuff. It's incredible and it's remarkable writing and acting, obviously. But from a chess standpoint, um, I thought I found her journey to be accurate and inaccurate. I have you and I have talked many times about what I call the Rockyization of America, which is that the part where they get better is just montaged out of there, but mostly it's just waking up every day and working at this for years and years and years. And all of a sudden they're good, but chess prodigies do exist. And for the most part, there are certain gifts that certain, some people have that are recognized early and that person puts all their effort into chess and then bam, they wind up like Beth Harmon. And I kind of think there's a Beth Harmon right now. You mentioned him as probably, I don't know, probably the second to seventh best player on the planet right now, which is Fabiano Caruano. Yeah, he's really an exceptional player. You don't get to that level of skill and that high of rating uh, without being a pretty unique person. Uh, of course, uh, for the viewers who weren't tuned in a couple of years ago, Magnus Carlsen and Fabiano Caruana played for the world championship. Uh, Magnus Carlsen is the current world champion, and he was defending his title against Fabi. And uh, as I recall, the match, which is 12 games long, included 12 draws. Uh, the games were all very similar, and that's because the players are both, frankly, geniuses and prepared so well uh, that they basically anticipated every turn. Uh, some commentators say that there were opportunities for Fabiano to uh, jump in specific moments, and he didn't really seize them. But to be able to see that level of detail and subtlety and play at that level, it's pretty exceptional. Uh, and at, the result of the match doesn't take anything away from Fabiano. As far as Beth Harmon goes, I really like that they're showing successful chess players as heroes today. Uh, I think that's really, really excellent. It's definitely inspiring. 
if you, if you just look at the numbers of players that have enrolled in new accounts on sites like chess.com and Lee Chess, and if you look at the sale of chess books, those numbers are going through the roof. Uh, and that's excellent. More chess players, more people accessing the game is just a good thing. It raises the level of competition. It generates more interest. It creates more opportunities for people to play. The, and I can't reference this part enough. The, the, the difference though is where you think, uh, and you and I have kind of talked privately about this, where you don't want young people uh, to get discouraged where you think you just pick up a board and maybe I'll get obsessed with that. It takes an incredible amount of study to, you're not going to be Beth Harmon if you're listening to this in your 20s. It's already too late. They max out around the age of 30. It's very similar to the NFL. The 30, a 35-year-old world champion is a pretty rare situation in, in, in the game of chess. But, you know, Chris, I just got married. You were there. Thank you. Congrats on the sex. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. Um, but there, there was a very expensive, well-made chess set there. And being able to play was fun with people, which I think is sort of the point. This is a hobby. It's a it's a jumping off point for all of these strategy conversations we're going to have. And it's maybe the Chinese game of Go. But other than that, this is an ancient, world-renowned game that people have enjoyed playing for hundreds, if not a couple thousand years. And I, I'm glad that, as you said, it's having a moment. Absolutely. I feel great that we're doing our part to make the game more accessible to people here. We're going to have a lot more conversations about chess, including that world championship match, that showdown between Magnus and Fabiano. There was a, a weird scandal that broke around it, and we'll discuss if that was relevant at all. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, and maybe there's a weird poker element to chess that we didn't discuss. But we'll get into that at the highest levels at, a, at another point. This is the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Andrews. And I'm Chris Andrews. <laughs>